Well, good morning. Let me invite you to remain standing as we prepare to hear God's word. Sorry, I ended this too soon, it seems, for everyone. I'm glad that we're having so much fun greeting one another. Um, please stay uh, standing. We're about to hear God's word. We're continuing our series in the book of Acts today, the story of the church. And now we are switching back. We had uh, talked about Paul last week, his beautiful, wonderful conversion story. And now we're going to go back to Peter and his ministry. And the two little stories that we're going to read today are connected to each other, um, but we don't often think about them when we think about all of the big picture, wonderful things that God is doing in Acts. But it might just be that these two stories are some of the most relevant for our ministry as a church today. Let's turn our attention to God's Word as it comes to us from chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would make Jesus better known to us today by your Spirit. We pray that you would open our hearts. Would you dig deep ears for us? Would you soften us to receive the implanted Word, this Word that brings salvation to all who have ears to hear? Speak through me, please, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So as many of you uh, heard, maybe last week, Haley and I had the privilege of getting to be in Italy for a little bit of time in July. And one of the things that we love doing, and I would recommend to you if you're ever ever able to go to that place, is go visit Michelangelo's David. That's that white marble statue of David. Um, We had to convince our son, he heard that he was maybe not clothed, and so that was a little awkward for, uh, for Graham for a second. But uh, it's this beautiful, glorious statue. It's this beautiful, glorious statue. There are so many people that want to visit it that you have to go online or call in very early, like many days before, just to get one of the 15-minute time slots to go into the museum. And uh, so we arrived the day that we had our time slot, and there are just a gaggle of people around, everyone who is there for that time slot that they had already signed up for, but also people who were there who were just hoping to get in who didn't have a time slot. And as we're there, we finally get up to our time to go in, and we're standing in line, and I spy across all of these people a street vendor. This street vendor is putting down prints 
of Florence, prints of paintings of Florence, and he's putting them down on the street where all of the foot traffic is. And he hopes that people as they're walking by will look down and spy a print that they want and purchase one. And I'm watching him do this, and I'm thinking, there's a lot of people here. I'm not sure that's a good idea. And then all of a sudden, what did I see? But a tourist walking by without thinking very much of it and just stepping right over a couple of prints. The street vendor yelled something to the man, but nothing happened. And then I just watched him as he got angrier and angrier and angrier. Finally, he bends down, he picks up the two prints, and he starts running after the tourist. He catches up to him and starts yelling at him. You can see a lot of gesticulating. You know, it was Italy, right? There's a lot of hand movement going on, a lot of yelling. And finally, it doesn't seem like this tourist is giving in. I see from his mouth, an expectoration of great size, spit, coming from the tourist towards the street vendor. Well, right after that happened, we were let in to go to see the David, and so we go with all of the other people who are let in at that time, and it truly is absolutely magnificent. If you look at the plaque next to the David, you will see written on there uh, by an art critic these words, When all is finished, it cannot be denied that this work has carried off the palm from all other statues, modern or ancient, Greek or Latin. No other artwork is equal to it with such proportion, beauty, and excellence. As we are admiring one of the greatest pieces of art that mankind has ever created, I spy across the room the same tourist who's also admiring that artwork. And as I'm watching with him, the two of us admiring this piece of art, it comes to me. Here we are, here we are in wonder at the greatest glory of man. But this man has just a few minutes before spat in the face of the greatest glory of God, a human being made in his own image. In the grand scheme of things, I think if we were polled, human beings would probably say that it would be better to not deface the David than to not deface that street vendor. But I wonder, do you think Jesus would agree with that? No. In the midst of the amazing ways that God's Spirit was moving in the early book of Acts, confrontations with high priests, the conversion of this up-and-coming scholar named Saul or Paul, we see two little stories, or maybe rather two stories about little people in the eyes of the world who by no means are little people in the eyes of God. Luke ties these two stories together chronologically. They happen sequentially in order. He ties them locationally. They both happen in the plains of Sharon in between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea, about 12 miles apart. But more importantly, he ties them together thematically. There's a word that is connecting both of these stories. It's the Greek word anastathe. It means rise. You can see it in verse 34 and 40. Luke uses the exact same word. Ironically, our translators have chosen to to, uh, translate it arise when it comes to Tabitha and rise with Aeneas, probably because it sounds better to say arise to a dead body, but it kind of sounds weird to say arise to a living body, but that's neither here nor there. 
The point is important. God has come to both of these people and brought them risen life. Risen life is the principle of the resurrection that's based on the truth of Jesus' resurrection. It's lived out in the community of God, the church. It's the raising up of those who are in the dust. It's prizing humility over pride. It's the elevation of weakness. It's the foolishness of God, which is far greater than every wisdom of man. It's the reason that we ought to treat the street vendor as much more important than Michelangelo's David. And it's also the calling of us, the church. So you and I, we are called to both experience, but also live out risen life before the people around us. So what we're going to do today is we're no outline for those of you who like things organized. I'm really sorry. We're just kind of going to look at the passage around this idea of the risen life that Jesus has come to bring in us and through us. We're going to start by thinking about the context here. Back in Acts chapter 6, back in Acts chapter 6, the church needs to do some structural changes, right? So the apostles are going to be called to preach, and they're like, we need some deacons. We need some people to serve in the church, to serve tables. So we're going to lift up some deacons to serve. And then you would think in the next chapters of Acts that we would see examples of the apostles preaching the word and the deacons serving. But isn't it funny? What do we see next? Acts chapter 7, Stephen is given a full, Stephen a deacon is given a full chapter where he's preaching. And then Philip begins the mission to sub-Saharan Africa by, uh, by expounding the word of God in Isaiah 53. Okay, so now, so now we get back to Peter and we're like, great, a big apostolic Petrine sermon. But amazingly, that's not what the Holy Spirit has for us. Look at 9.32. Peter went here and there among them all. Peter does not fire up the private jet for his big evangelistic tour where he speaks to multitudes. No, he starts to walk to people who need help. F.F. Bruce calls it an itinerant ministry of visitation among the dispersed Christian communities of Judea. I love this. Peter does not find himself to be too important to do works of service, to care about the people of God that are in his charge. He's the keystone apostle, but he visits the bedridden. And there's no contradiction on God's part. Setting apart deacons for service and then showing us how they preach and then setting apart apostles for preaching and showing us how they serve is a reminder to us that all of us, Every single one of us in God's kingdom economy is called to bring risen life, not just by our deeds, but also by our words, not just by our words, but also by our deeds. Why did Peter do this? Well, he knew his Savior did this. He learned it from his Savior. Look again at verse 34. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Mark chapter 2, verse 11, Jesus also speaking to a paralytic, rise and pick up your bed. 
Look with me again at Tabitha's story. Peter is summoned. He enters this upper room. There are people in there wailing and weeping, mourning her loss. And then he tells them to leave so that he can now lift her up with his hand to newness of life. We even get a little bit more. It says, uh, we're told that he says, Tabitha, arise. Does that remind you of anything? Mark's gospel again. Jesus is summoned to a ruler's house to heal his daughter. When he enters into the room, there are mourners and wailers, and he asks them to leave the room. And then he says to the girl, reaching out his hand to you, to her, little girl, arise. What's interesting is that Mark actually gives us a little bit more insight into exactly what Jesus says in that passage. He says in Aramaic, Talitha. Kumi. In this passage, Luke also gives us a little insight into the languages spoken. We're told that Tabitha's name is translated into the Greek Dorcas. In other words, Tabitha is the Aramaic name, Dorcas the Greek name. So when Peter goes and speaks to her, what does he say to Tabitha? He says this, Tabitha Kumi. One letter difference, Talitha Kumi, Tabitha Kumi. It's a little on the note. Did y'all follow that? Do I see any blank stares? Jesus' ministry, Peter's ministry, connected by the Holy Spirit so that we could see something. Connected by the Holy Spirit so we could see something. That God's Spirit, by our words and our deeds, just like Jesus did, brings life to people. Brings life to people. So, let me make a couple of applications from that. Now, it's important to say that Jesus is the one that brings the life. There's also not just a comparison to these passages, but also a contrast, right? When Peter walks in, he has to say, in Jesus' name, rise. When Peter lifts up Dorcas, he has to first get down on his, name, uh, on his knees excuse me, and pray that Christ would raise her up. Jesus, on the other hand, of course, is the one from whom all of life emanates, and so he needs not do those things. All he has to do is say, rise. Of course, Peter has no intrinsic power. He doesn't know a special incantation. He knows that Jesus won't heal any, uh, everyone, but he does know that if healing occurs at all, it has to come from the one who is life. But having said that, we certainly have a part to play. That's the beauty of the way the Holy Spirit tells this story. Yes, there's a contrast, but in the similarities, the people of God should be amazed that we are called to be ambassadors of the life of Christ to other people. Because every single one of us have, has both word gifts and deed gifts to give to others about Jesus. This is what Peter says himself, 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And it's not only that we can, it's that we must, it's that we should. Pastor Paul, in one of his sermons not too long ago, said, one of the things that the next generation is asking is, is 
this religion, this Christian religion, does it really make a difference in people's lives? Is your love, your prayers, your service, your hospitality, is it real? Or is it something that we just talk about? If we're going to be people who believe with our heads in the resurrection, we've got to be a people that begins to bring resurrection life out of us and to others. So how do we do that? Well, first, our service can be small. Our service can be small. Look at Dorcas. That's kind of a funny name, isn't it? Forgive me for a chuckle. Look at Dorcas. Her service is small. What does she have? She has access to cloth and the ability to sew, and so she makes clothing for people in need. I was talking to a family a couple of weeks ago, and they had a hard year, and they were not able to go to their community group that year. But one of the small services that the community group leaders offered to them was, hey, a reach out. Can we pray for you? How can we pray for you? And then that community group prayed for them. And this family said that this was one of the most beautiful ministries to them in that difficult year. Our service is small, right? Just a cup of water in Jesus' name, just a cup of water is beautiful because it brings with it the life of Jesus to someone else. Secondly, not only can our service be small, it should be for the small, for the small. We see it in Tabitha. Look at verse 39. Amongst the mourners with, uh, at Tabitha's bedside are a number of widows. All the widows, it says, stood beside Peter weeping and showing tunics, tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. In that day and age, a widow would have needed practical help. She had no social security to keep her okay and in the black. She needed charity from people who would care for her, a community around her. And it's important to say that Tabitha Dorcas knows that there is someone in need and makes sure to care for that person. Ajith Fernando says this, commenting on this passage, Tabitha's care for the needy is presented as a model to the church. I will go so far as to say that a good test of Christian character is how people treat those considered unimportant in society, especially when no one is looking. The true test is whether special concern is shown to the needy. Third, and connected to this, Service needs to come from our weakness, not our strength. Here's what I mean. Think back to our Florentine street vendor. What Jesus was known for is that He cared about the poor and the lowly. He didn't cozy up to the rulers of this age. He didn't try to get in with the special or the important people. He cared about the ones that people didn't care about. As a church, we actually need to think the same way. Not because we have so much and they need it. This isn't about a savior complex. It actually comes from somewhere different. Because we know that outside of Christ, we would have nothing. That's why. Because we know that outside of Christ, we would have nothing. Because we were dead and our sins and trespasses. We talked about that last week because we need help because we were picked up and brushed off and placed upon a rock because we were nothing and God saved us. So too, we can look at others and know 
where they are in their sin and difficulty and love them well. You kind of see it a little bit, don't you, in Peter himself. He stays with Simon a Tanner. Now, Simon a Tanner would not have been a great person to hang out with. First, he would have been ceremoniously unclean. He was always dealing with dead animal bodies. He would have gone through a very smelly and difficult process to take those skins, use salt water by the sea, and get them ready for clothing. But Simon deigns to go and spend time with this Tanner in his smelly little house by the sea. The more we grow in the American dream, the easier it is for us to say, those people, they're not my kind of people, right? It's easy for us to say that. The more we grow in the gospel, the easier it is for us to say, oh, those are my kind of people. Are you growing in distinction to others or are you growing in solidarity with others? Now, let me pause here for a moment. I've been talking a lot about good works, right? That Protestant preacher telling us about good works, particularly because Peter and Dorcas are shining examples of it. That might be a little unsettling for some of us. Like some of us, myself included, we see a person full of good works, always doing good in the community, and we think, what are they trying to prove? Don't they know that God already accepts them based on faith and not on what they do? But it's really important, really important to realize that the Bible doesn't think that way. The Bible doesn't think that way. Look at verse 36. Dorcas is praised because she is full of good works and acts of charity. It's absolutely true that faith and faith alone is what justifies us. We heard Peter say that in Acts chapter 2 already, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But you can't read Acts. You can't read Acts without recognizing that the life-changing salvation that comes to you has to be the risen life that you offer. Like, imagine how boring Acts would be. Paul, amazing conversion, and he lived out the rest of his days in his study reading nice books. No. The conversion of life when we receive the resurrection, it actually has to come into us and flow through us. That's always how it happens. Listen to Colossians 1, 3 through 5. We thank God when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, why? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Why do you love people? <laughs> why do you care about the saints? Why do you serve others? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Because life is coming, because life is in you, you can serve others. Now, let me also say this, as a brief aside. When we read passages like this, we think to ourselves, why can't these miracles come to me and my family? Why can't these miracles come to me and my family? We know certainly that there were other people who were sick at the same time that this paralytic was sick. We know that there are other people who died at the same time that Tabitha died. Why don't I get the miracles? And this we say this, this is a token and a promise. These stories are tokens and promises to you that one day the miracle is coming. One day the miracle is coming. We've got to know that, that because Jesus rose, so will you. Because 
because he lives a life where he will never experience sickness or sadness or unhealth ever again, so will you. It's a hope that is laying for us in the heavens. In the Brothers Karamazov long book, got to read it this summer, an old monk, Zosima, is moving closer to death. And this is how he describes it. It's the great mystery of human life that old grief passes gradually into quiet, tender joy. I bless the rising sun each day, and as before, my heart sings to meet it, but now I love even more its setting, its long, slanting rays, and the soft, tender, gentle memories that come with them, the dear images from the whole of my long life, and over all the divine truth, softening, reconciling, forgiving. My life is ending. I know that well, but every day that is left me, I feel how my earthly life is in touch with a small, excuse me, is in touch with a new infinite approaching life, the nearness of which sets my soul quivering with rapture, my mind glowing and my heart weeping with joy. We can only pray that the sweet hope of eternity becomes more and more precious to us. I know that's rich coming from me, a young man, but it has to be true of the people of God, a hope that a sweet, infinite life is approaching all of us. And then what happens? Because of the hope that's kept in heaven for you, you'll be rich in good works. That's how it works. Think of the alternative. If death is haunting your every step, you always have to negotiate with scarcity. If death is something that's coming for you, you have to think, I have limited time and resources on this earth. You might could do good things, yeah, but it's always a negotiation. If life is coming for you, if you are not haunted by that scarcity, then the fullness of the eternal God can flow in you and through you. This week, I read a little bit about the Lord Ashley, the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury, not someone I would normally spend time reading about. He was born in 1801, served about 50 years in the British government. He had a rough upbringing. Though he was wealthy, he was completely neglected by his parents. They were never around for him, did not show him any affection or love. But he had a housekeeper who cared about him and raised him. And as happenstance would have it in God's providence, she was a Christian believer. She taught him the gospel. And it was her love for him that prompted him to live a life of service for the people of England. In his 50 years of work in Parliament, among other things, he helped to abolish slavery and improve working conditions in coal mine and make it illegal for chimney sweeps to be less than a certain age. Up to this point, you would, th- you would send eight-year-olds down chimneys in order to sweep them. He cared about child labor laws. He opened schools for the poor. He was passionate about Bible translation and missions. Upon his death, Charles Spurgeon called him by far the best man of the age, and this is what he said to eulogize him. Both man and beast may unite in mourning him. He was the friend of every living thing. He lived for the oppressed. He lived for London. He lived for the nation. He lived still more for God. He has finished his course. And though we do not lay him to sleep in the grave with the sorrow of those who have no hope, yet we cannot but mourn so great a man and a prince has fallen this day in Israel. 
On the day of his funeral, the working class lined the streets just to get a glimpse of his coffin. He was called the poor man's earl, and currently a beautiful white marble statue of him stands on the west door of Westminster Abbey. Now, I don't know for sure, but I would venture to say if you met him in heaven and asked him about his good works, he probably would say two things. One, it was all Christ in me. And two, give thanks that God raised up my housekeeper, Maria Mills. Now, look, I know this is kind of a let's go get him sermon, right? A stir us up to love and good works, a rah, 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 let's do this thing, church. That's kind of the point. It has to be from the church that the risen life of Jesus comes to us and then through us. And it's got to mix things up a little bit. William Willimon comments and captures well how these two passages stir us up into risen life. Here's what he says. Here in this new community, no one stays in his or her place. Common fishermen are preaching to the temple authorities. Paralyzed old men are up and walking about and changing lives. And a woman called Gazelle heads a welfare program among the poor at Joppa. Every time a couple of little stories like these are faithfully told by the church, the social system of paralysis and death is rendered null and void. The church comes out and speaks the evangelical and prophetic rise. And nothing is ever quite the same. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to rise up because of the life that you have already given us, because of the promise of the life that is coming to us. We pray that we as a church would live the way of Jesus, not because we have to prove anything, not because we have to earn anything, but because we long for your risen life to come into this world. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.